0: homes.com we've done your homework welcome to the taking a walk podcast music history on foot follow this audio storytelling podcast at apple podcast spotify podcast playground or wherever you get your podcast on this episode join buzz knight as he takes to the streets of south philly with adam wiener from the band low cut connie they're a band heralded for their amazing live performances Everyone from Springsteen to Elton John has become a fan. And you will also when Adam from Low Cut Connie joins Buzz next on Taking a Walk.
1: Well, it's so great to be uh, taking a walk here in South Philly.
2: Yeah, right? Oh, yeah, this is definitely South Philly. You can tell from the people, everybody's got an attitude. Look at these people.
1: Adam, it's so nice to meet
2: you. You, you um, too. As I was
1: uh, waiting for you here You'll dig this So the guy was Walking with a baby in a stroller And uh, I heard him go And I couldn't help myself Because sometimes once in a while I, I, I am like the human Shazam Yeah. And I went Birdland yeah. And he goes, Yeah! How'd you know that? Hell I yeah. said, That's one of my favorites, man.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. And he started telling me, he said, uh, He goes, I knew Jocko. I said, You knew Jocko Pastorius? Holy smokes. And we talked for five minutes. So I have always felt the people from Philadelphia are tremendously friendly. And um, the one bad rap I think that
2: they deserve is, I think they're driving leaves a little bit to be desired. Not good at driving. We're the meanest uh, sports fans in the world, you know. uh, We torture. We torture people here. And you know, when you heard the story about that robot that came to Philly that toured the world, and the people in Philly killed the robot and mutilated it. (laughs) It visited, like, all these different countries and cities and states, but when it got to Philly, our people murdered this robot. (laughs) So,
1: <laughs> but I will draw say, your own
2: conclusions.
1: Yeah, I mean, but I will say some of this is legacy building, don't you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, people in Philly like to be perceived as tough. If you know what I mean. Where do you think that comes from? Uh, an inferiority complex. To New York, right? To everywhere. <laughs> to everywhere, like you know the the you, you know. That slogan from the Eagles, no one likes us, we don't care. They, they care. Uh, <laughs> if you have to say it, you care. You right. Know? Um, no, I mean, it's like you've got you've got New York City right there. You've got Washington, D.C. right there. Um, and Philly was the biggest and most important city in the United States in the early part of this country. And then it wasn't you know and it's still that's still thumbprinted on the city. But I
1: also think that uh, you know, the cities are
2: having a tough time these days, don't you think? Every city? Absolutely. And I think Philadelphia, I see I love it here because it's never the it city. You know, like if you go to Nashville or Austin, or San Francisco. These are places that have completely transformed because they had some sort of moment, you know. Philly plods along in its, in its dysfunctional way with all of its charms, with all of its soul, with all of its dysfunctions. And people may discover us, they may not. People that live here love it. But it's never like the in-fashion, trendy city, and I'm a-okay with that. Do you think, though, this thing about the cities is a bit of uh,
1: journalistic clickbait these days, or is it really a problem how the
2: decaying of cities is occurring? I don't know if I'd use the word decay. I wouldn't use the word decay. But changing, um, and in some ways, I think for the better. There's some things, this is the world, but some things are always getting worse and some things are getting better, you know? We get the message that everything is getting worse, but some things are getting better. Personally, personally, in terms of COVID and what it did to cities, there's some positives. There's a lot of negatives, but I think there's some positives too. For me, I'm an artist living in the middle of a crazy city, and when I was growing up, in the suburbs in New Jersey, you know, families with kids lived out in the burbs. And the freaky deaky people, the artists, queer people, crazy people, people who are just looking to live a different kind of life than you can find in the suburbs, come to the city. Well, over the last generation, that changed like, families are living in the city more and more and more and artists are getting priced out and people of color getting priced out the neighborhood characters getting lost but during covid that changed back it went went backwards again a lot of the families and stuff went out to the burbs again and i see a lot more freaky deaky people in philadelphia these days and (laughs) i like that that's what i want to (laughs) see let's uh
1: let's take a little walk here around this area and see some freaky dicky people. In Yiddish, we
2: say dray around. Let's go dray around. Let's dray around.
1: So this is Columbus Square, South Philly. Yeah. And um, you like to come over here
2: and run once in a while? And All the time. Yeah. All the time. And in fact, you never know who you're going to see in this park. Um, and this neighborhood is kind of like the UN. You have... In that direction, a mostly black neighborhood. In that direction, a Vietnamese neighborhood. In this direction is a Lebanese area. And Cambodian that way. Uh, Italian market there. Mexican market there. And everything in between. You've got the Chinese area down here on Washington. You hear every language spoken. And that is what I love about this neighborhood.
1: Yeah, I love that too. That's sort of You know, when I think of uh, great places like, well, Boston is that way, where where I live. Uh, Chicago's that
2: way, certainly. Yeah. Uh, It's like when I lived in New York City, I lived in Queens for many years. Queens is like that. It's like the UN. It's like Greek, Argentinian, uh, people from Africa, Cambodia, Vietnam. It's like everything. That's what I like about the city.
1: So, take me back to growing up in the suburbs what uh, what town did you grow up in? Cherry
2: Hill, twenty minutes from here uh, the most suburby suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, before I was born, it was like all farms, and then, in my parents' generation, they built all these very new. Uh, places they built the Cherry Hill Mall which I worked at I worked at Macy's for years as a perfume and cologne spritzer. <laughs> you know the people that attack you when you go into the mall and sure. try to spray you I yep. was one of those people yep So I grew up I was like a mall rat Jersey suburb kid and I all I wanted to do was go to a city. And so when I was 18, I went to New York City. Packed up and went. I got into school, which I didn't care about school. It was just an excuse to move to New York. I got a job the first week I was there playing piano in a restaurant, which led to all these other bars and restaurants hiring me to play piano. And I started my gigging life, my performing life for real at 18. But you must have had a sense before that that you had this
1: uh, intense musical
2: connection. I wanted to be an actor before that. I knew I wanted to be on stage. Um, I was the star of all the plays in high school. I also had a band. Um, My music, though, the songs that I wrote, that was a secret. I never played my own music for anybody. Um, and I don't think I ever thought that I was ever going to do anything with my songs. That was like my, just for me. And so it's a real twist for me to be out here in the world as a professional songwriter, singer, you know. So who coaxed you to share the music that you had created? I coaxed myself because... Um, when I got these gigs playing piano in these places and people, you know, requested songs, I started to tr- to write songs, you know, for the clientele that was there. Like, if I played in kind of a shit-kickery country place, I needed to have country songs, right? Yep. If I played in the very upscale gay piano bar, I needed to have that material. If I played in an Italian restaurant in Queens, which I did for a while, I needed to have that repertoire. And so I would start to write material to please the people in the places I was gonna be. And that turned into songs that I'm performing in public for people that I wrote. And a lot of times I was kind of pawning my own songs off as cover songs, if that makes sense. I wanted some of the material to sound classic, right? Um, Like if I played in this show tune bar, I would write songs that sounded like old show tunes, right? And I sort of developed a skill and... I realized that probably more than acting or um, any other artistic pursuit that I was interested in, that writing songs was probably the thing that I was most naturally good at. And so it kind of went from there. And did you have somebody that was sort of uh, a mentor at that time? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not really, because song... If you're a piano person, it's a very solitary um, musical endeavor. You know, there's a film, actually, that I love. It's from 40-plus years ago. It's called Piano Players Never Play Together. Okay. It's It's a New Orleans piano film. And it really captures just in the title, that, you know, guitar players, they, like, jam together, drummers kind of, like, woodshed together, etc. But piano, we're very solitary, you know? There's never two pianos together. And if you play piano, you're trying to kind of be the whole band, right? you got to be the rhythm section and everything. So, no, I didn't really have anybody I can think of that was like a musical mentor that I knew in person um, until you know the one, the one person that comes to mind who I only spoke to one time uh, I went to Memphis Tennessee I went to Memphis Tennessee in 2001 I did, a, I did a semester at the University of Memphis just because I wanted to go to Memphis and listen to blues and country and Elvis and just be there, you know? And I got an internship at a radio station there. I just wanted to be in Memphis. And I met this guy named Mose Vincent, who at the time was probably close to 90 at that point. And he was a piano player that had been playing and recording all the way back to the 1940s. He played piano on a bunch of early Sun Records sessions, early 50s, pre-Elvis, and he had a gig at this place called Center for Southern Folklore. I think it was every Friday night he would play piano. This was like the very end of his life. He had lost one eye, he was like not well, and he just completely knocked me out, like his piano playing. And I talked to him and told him I was a piano player. I'd come down from New York. I wanted to talk to him, meet him and see what he did. And he said, alright, just stick with me. <laughs> so I would go and watch him, but that's the only time I ever spoke to him. But his I would say hit watching him was probably the closest thing to like a mentorship because I really learned a lot from watching him.
1: But I think you're a
2: historian of
1: sorts when you talk about music and influences. So who are some of the other piano players that have had a
2: big impact on you? You know, what's funny is a few years ago when I got had the privilege of hanging out with Elton John, he was talking about piano stuff and... How he liked my piano playing, etc. And he said, "You know, Adam, my heroes were Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino." And I said, and he said, "I learned everything from them." And I said, "Me too, plus you, right?" So um, I love Fats Domino, Jerry Lee. I mean, these are the, the, the the great rock and roll. Piano players, but also I would say Professor Longhair, James Booker. Uh, he's probably um, the greatest of the New Orleans piano players, you know, on paper. Uh, so many, but I I listen to a lot of guitar music and try to interpret it on piano. If that makes sense. Sure. So I am just as much influenced by Keith Richards. As a piano player, if, if that makes sense. Yes. Because Keith, the way that he plays guitar, the way that everything has to do with feel and the riff and the meat and potatoes of the song, not the showyosity of it, like a like a like a Jimi Hendrix type of guitar player. Um, that's been very influential on me.
1: So when Elton called you out. Uh, on the, on stage at
2: uh, the concert yeah. it was in Philly, right? Yes, it was. That, what was your reaction? Well, I'm sad to say I wasn't there. I, you weren't there. So what happened was I met him before the show I went backstage we hung out for a while I met, Bernie Taupin was there the same night so I got to meet Bernie and you actually you know it's an interesting story, timely story because we just lost Robbie Robertson And the conversation was a lot about the band, because the first show that Elton ever did here in Philly was at the Electric Factory. And the same time that he was here, the band was playing at the Spectrum, I think. He was brand new. This must have been 1970, right? And so my friend, Larry Magid, who started the electric factory. I think it was him who brought the band to check out this young kid from England named Elton John. And Elton told me this story, and he said that he idolized the band. He loved their first couple records, and they came, and they came to talk to him, and he said it was such an amazing experience meeting them that he and Bernie then wrote a song, Levon. After meeting Levon, and then he said, eventually Elton, one of his sons' middle name is Levon. That's how much the band meant to him. Um, but anyway, he's telling me that story backstage in Philly, and it's wonderful. And he's saying all kinds of encouraging things about Low Cut Connie and everything. He goes to do the show. I'm watching the show. I. I am texting a million people. I was just hanging out with Elton John, whatever. And I was hungry, and I decided to leave because I had just seen Elton's show like a month prior in Vegas, and I had a 6 a.m. flight to L.A. So I left the show halfway through, I'm embarrassed to say, and then I'm sitting at the fucking Penrose Diner across from the Phillies game, I was eating a grilled chicken parm. And all of a sudden, my phone is ringing crazy. And Elton is talking about me on stage and dedicating his encore to me. And everybody is texting me, are you here, are you here, are you here? And I wasn't there. So, (laughs) I wasn't there. (laughs) I'm embarrassed to say. Is that a moment you would like to get back? Well... There's a 2% chance, 2% is the number, I think, that when he came off stage before the encore, he asked, can we get Adam out here? And when they said we can't find him, he dedicated the song instead of, you know. There's a 2% chance that he would have brought me out on stage. For that reason, I would like to have a do-over, just to find out. But, hey, what are you going to do? It's the way it goes. It's the way it goes. Well, back to the band for a second.
1: One of the things about the band that I think was always intriguing was the fact that, especially early on, they were really hard to categorize. You couldn't really put them in a particular box. We hadn't heard anything really like the band at that point. Yeah. Um, Is that something... When people describe Loka Kani, that you sort of like when people go, I don't know really how to, I know you guys are rock and roll, but um, I'm not sure
2: how to categorize you. I've been called so many different things. Um, I always just say rock and roll. Um, I think there is a correlation with the band, because even though you say when they first came out, you couldn't categorize them, at the same time, their music was very classic and familiar. Like, when you hear The Wait or Cripple Creek or their early songs, it sounds like it could have been written 100 years ago or 100 years from now. It's that classic, you know? But at the same time, new and a, a, a flavor that certainly isn't popular at that time, right? That's what I hear about Low Cut Connie all the time, is that my songs and the way we present them... They seem very familiar. Like it's not experimental music, but it's also a little bit uncharacter uncategorizable because it falls between the cracks. And I know this, I know the bad side of this because the industry, the music industry, not the music, but the industry is obsessed with categorization and genre and algorithm. And so matching to other people's sound gets you further in an algorithmic industry than doing something unique, right? Because people who listen to Mumford & Sons a lot, if you make music that sounds very similar to Mumford & Sons, the algorithm will service you to those listeners, right? My music, again, it's not experimental, um, but it does fall between the cracks, and people have trouble comparing it to something current. And that works against me in the industry, if that makes sense. I'll throw another band at you that uh,
1: defied categorization. I wonder how you feel about them, the Little Feet.
2: Mm-hmm. You're in this kind of area of music that I love, like Creedence Clearwater, where little feet where, again, it's very familiar and draws on classic American things, but does it in a modern way. And that's sort of where I live, but those kinds of approaches tend to not be commercially successful. (laughs) Like, I've got my audience, but I'm not on the pop charts or anything. I can't compete with that. So how do you feel about all that? I don't care at all. I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm not in that. What a, what a terrible um, pressure and lifestyle it is to per- be in pop music. Oh my God. I mean, I have friends that are in that world and I've sort of flirted with it here and there. And it is just um, a very unforgiving industry to be in. I have, I, for me, there are artists like Lou Reed, Tom Waits, Patti Smith, you know, people that I really, really admire what they did in their music, and they did it for decades and decades and decades. That's where I live, you know cult artists basically
1: carving your own path yeah
2: and you've had these moments of uh... or even like when you talk about Prince or James Brown people who are iconic and were commercially um, massively successful popular artists but they were also cult artists at the same time because most of their music that they put out was not for pop audiences and was, you know, focused on the music, the art, and the audience. It really wasn't geared towards the industry, if you know what I mean. But you've had these
1: moments, these
2: serendipitous
1: moments that have occurred in uh, your career to date. The Elton one you just talked about there's this little event that happened with uh, uh, Barack Obama. Yeah. Um, Tell me about how you
2: discovered that that had happened. Just like everybody else, I woke up. I'd actually just moved to Philly and I was sleeping on an air mattress in our house. We didn't have furniture yet and we didn't have air conditioning. It was like 10,000 degrees because it was August. And I woke up and my phone had a million messages and They all said, POTUS playlist. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't have my contact lenses in, and I just ignored it and went through my day. And then a little while later, I investigated it, and I realized something, something crazy had happened. And then when I saw the Obama, there's a photograph that Pete Souza took of Obama's hand writing the list. He's looking at his iPad through his iTunes, and he's choosing the songs and writing them, and under his hand, you can see Oh Cut Connie, Boozophilia. That and I really, you know... Then I knew something crazy had just happened. And you got to go to the White House. I did, 2016. Um, I did, and he... he uh he came out Adam <laughs> great to meet you did you get a tour? did they give you some food? oh my god and I was like I and I don't typically get starstruck but I was a little bit stammering I was um, Mr. President thank you thank you so much you know and he said, hey, uh, when's your new album coming out? I said, I'm working on it right now. He said, okay, well, you got to let me know. I like what you're doing. I like your style. Keep it up. <laughs> yeah, it was cool.
1: That's awesome.
2: And then let's just get to
1: the other moment, too, which was, uh, let's call it the Springsteen moment.
2: Oh, man. Well, listen, I grew up in New Jersey in the 80s, so... Do the math, right? Uh, Getting blessed by Bruce is like, it's like the Pope drove by and blessed you, you know. I went to see the Broadway show. I think it was 2018 that he first did it. And I sat down in my seat. I got a ticket like everybody else. And this guy came out and said, are you Adam? I said, yeah. He said, low cut Connie, right? I said, yeah. He said, hold on and this, this other woman from Bruce's management team comes out and she said, you know, he'd like to meet you after the show. And this is like 30 seconds before the curtain. And I was like, right, oh, okay, shit. Right, <laughs> really? And uh, she said, yeah, go to this door right when the lights come up. Go to that door. So we went in and Max Weinberg happened to be there the same night. So... I meet Max Weinberg. we were in the Bruce's, like, little waiting area outside his dressing room. And I had to take a piss so bad. I hadn't peed in, like, two hours. And I'm like, but if I pee right now, I might miss him, whatever. So I was like, fuck it. I, I'm just going to go in his bathroom. And so I go, and I come out. And as I'm coming out, he's coming in the room. And... He hugs Max, and then I go. I put my hand out, and I was like, "Hey, Bruce, I'm Adam, the band Low Cut." And he said, "I know, I know. Come here." He gives me a big hug and a kiss. He's like, "You, you guys are fabulous. You're from Philly, right?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, "You guys are everywhere. I got to come see you guys. I, I hear your live show is incredible." I said, "Well, I, le- I learned it from watching you. You know, so it, it was amazing." Met, Patty hung out for a while. He was extremely encouraging. Because Extreme. the thing with Bruce Springsteen is like the records, he's got a lot of classic records, but it's his live show. It's him as a live performer that I think is his true gift and his his legacy, really. And that is kind of like me as well. I I have developed over the years, tried to turn myself into this, performer that people remember you know and give something to people live that they take home with them and talk about and want to see again you know what's the first Bruce show that you saw 1999 or 90 the first reunion of the somebody smarter than me can look up the date of when the East Street band first got back together it was 98 or 99 right and I was 18 That's when I first started going to concerts. So, was it New York? I saw him him in in, um, New Jersey in the Meadowlands, I think it was, and um, that was earth-shattering. Not that long after that, I saw Iggy Pop reunited with the Stooges, and that was earth-shattering. Saw James Brown right here in Philly on the waterfront, that was earth shattering. I remember James Brown did a song about the Columbine shooting had just happened. He had a song, killing us out, school is in, come back tomorrow and try it again. Killing us out, he was writing about gun violence. And as a, as, a, as a older legacy artist, he was he was something else, you know, he was the real thing, James Brown.
1: Who first inspired you musically uh,
2: as far as having a social conscience about what you write about? I I guess I would say Bob Dylan because I remember... I grew up on pop music like everybody else. Madonna, you know. And I loved pop music in the 80s. But I remember being about 15 years old and hearing a cassette tape and it was probably Bob Dylan Greatest Hits Volume 1 and it completely stopped me in my tracks because I it expanded my thinking about what a song could do. Here's that song, The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll that is not only socially conscious Politically, you know potent but it's an incredible character study it's so evocative you can picture what's happening who this person is what the feeling in the room is and it's like a mini movie and that's one of those moments and I've had a few in my life where I heard music that made all other music sound dumb you know yeah what a way to put it It was hard, after that, it was hard to go back to listening to, I don't know, the Backstreet Boys or whatever was on the radio at that time. I remember hearing the Velvet Underground for the first time when I was about 20. And hearing that first Velvet Underground album and then absolutely devouring all of their four albums and then devouring all of Lou Reed's solo it made a lot of other music sound very trite very trite, (laughs) you know and I was like well, I guess I'm going to throw a lot of my records away and start over Um, but yeah uh, there's certain people that can cut through with a song and make you really feel something and maybe understand something. And the most powerful is when a song, like you're talking about socially conscious songs, instead of teaching you something, it's just showing you something you already knew, instinctually. That is when something I think really is nailing it in a song. Do you prefer the subtle approach or the hit you over the head with a two by four approach I I don't know you could you could go both ways but everything has to come from the music first see I'm a musician first and the 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 lyric side I I've learned I've gotten better but I wake up every day with music in my head more than words if that makes sense um And I think that if the music isn't strong, then the song's not going to be good. So, from a lyrical perspective, it kind of doesn't... You could be subtle, you could be aggressive, but it has to really match the music. That's what songs are there for. You know, whether it's the melody or the rhythm, it's got to be something that you can feel instantly, because otherwise you have a poem. You know, which is something else. Let's, uh,
1: let's saunter a little bit more and take us through the uh, evolution of Low Cut Connie. Because it's really kind of gone through both the personnel side of evolving.
2: What are you talking about? I've only had 13 drummers.
1: <laughs> Isn't it spinal tapping?
2: <laughs> oh, man. Did they explode? I don't know. I saw a few of them, possibly. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I mean, yeah, we've had 25 plus people in the band. And I'm the only consistent through line. Um, although, I got to give props to Will Donnelly, my guitar player, who's been with me for 10 years this fall. He's been with me since the third album. Um, I don't know, Buzz, like things, I I just think that you gotta grow and change all the time. I don't like when I hear a musician put music out that's the same thing as they did before. I want to hear a new thing, and it might not be their best, but I like, um, I like artists that try, you know? Um, Prince was somebody that always, always changing. David Bowie was always changing. Madonna, always changing. Neil Young, you know, he's always doing things and every other thing is good and every other thing is terrible, but he's always trying something, you know? Um, I like that. So, I guess I have a restless thing with, with my, performance and my music and so it is always changing and evolving and I think that's fine and the fans most of the fans have stuck with me so but it also stems from
1: you tour an awful lot yeah oh yeah And, and you always have these performances that are memorable and that people want to come back for more
2: on I hope so um Initially, we were a recording band that couldn't tour because we had the one guy in England and then the two guys in Florida. And we would get together a few times a year. And the record the record was being reviewed in Rolling Stone and NPR. And USA Today and Guitar World and, and New York Times, but we'd only play five shows, you know, a year in the, in the beginning. Um, then the whole script flipped and we became a live band and built this whole other reputation in the sort of the second chapter. Um, and... Uh, That's why I really relate to uh, people like Springsteen, because initially it was this Columbia Records singer-songwriter identity that he had, but then it was this um, powerful rock and roll show that he toured the country with over and over and over and over again, which I can really relate to that. How
1: difficult was it uh, in these COVID years? I know you recorded the, the quarantine
2: sessions uh, there. I thought the COVID years were fantastic. (laughs) I um, (laughs) am. No, I mean, it was a horrible time, but uh, creatively it was fantastic because Will and I did a 100 plus live stream shows with this thing called Tough Cookies. And I became a TV host for a year and a half. And I absolutely fucking loved it. So I actually really cherish that time because I, I really um, I felt like what we were doing was really reaching people and was meaningful to people and um, when you're a musician or an artist you never know if it means anything to anybody. That was a time I knew it meant something to people. When I saw nurses showing it in the hospitals, and the ICUs, our show. When I saw very ill people sending us messages, you know, thank you, you're keeping me going, you're keeping my spirits up. It it was fantastic, and I, I decided to just keep doing it until we could tour again, which took a year and a half, so. And you like interviewing. I do, yeah which is another thing I started doing during the pandemic that I'd never done before. Yeah, I got to, I got to interview, oh man, Dion, Frankie Valley, I got one of the last interviews with Mike Nesmith from the Monkees. I interviewed most of the members of Sly and the Family Stone, Larry Graham, Nancy Wilson from Heart, uh, on and on and on. It was absolutely fantastic.
1: I would imagine as somebody who enjoys being a student of things and always trying to improve upon it, that uh, just like your music with your interviewing um, approach, you've always kind of gone back and said,
2: well, maybe next time let me tackle it this way or this way. Oh yeah, you learn, you learn for sure and uh i'd like a redo on a few of those interviews but um you learn yeah i mean like that's the thing about any kind of performance you can't you have to learn by doing which means you have to bomb before you can hit you know what would you tell somebody now who's
1: a musician on the way up or trying to be on the way up, Yeah, that's what
2: advice would you give them? It, you know, it's it sounds harsh, but it's what I was told when I first started. If you can do anything else, do it. Meaning, it's the people that have such a drive and passion for their the art life that they will put themselves in a lifestyle that will be very, very difficult. Be very challenging. Um, Most people can't hack that. So you gotta really want it bad and be willing to look in the mirror in order to get better at what you do, which is what the real... Task is The hardest part, I don't care if you're a dancer, an actor, a writer, a painter, a singer, whatever you are, the hardest part that people don't want to say is you've got to look in the mirror and self-correct. You've got to admit when that song is just not good enough, when the show is just not good enough. When your singing isn't that good, i got to make get better. When every aspect of it, you got to be truthful about. Um, if you have the belief that you're as good as you're ever going to be, you should probably quit. That's what I would, that's my Philadelphia attitude, by the way. <laughs> Somebody else would give you different advice that would be a little more hippy-dippy. That's not me. I came up the hard way, and I think it's fair to tell young performers, writers, musicians, go out there and do it, and do it over and over again, and fail at it, and then correct. Right? Steve Martin has a book called Born Standing Up, that's all about his stand-up comedy career before he uh, was a movie star. And read that book, It's it's one of my favorite books about becoming a performer. How many times and in how many different ways did he bomb? And for how long? He tried to do magic, he tried to be a folk singer. He tried to be an impressionist, he tried to be an actor, he tried to be a writer, he tried to do it all, and he did not succeed until he realized what his actual performance should be, which was to combine all of them. Right? Yep. And the guy's a master now of everything. He became a master. He became a master. He wasn't a born genius. He became a master of his craft through a lot of work and a lot of failure. And it's so valuable to go out on stage and feel confident because you know exactly what you're doing and that, that takes a long time. So what do you got planned for the rest of the year? Man, I got a new album coming out in three weeks, Art Dealers, September 8th. Um, We're doing a long tour, September, October, Eastern U.S. tour. Um, And then I have a film coming out. I made a movie, also called Art Dealers. The film is going to be showing at the Richmond International Film Festival and the Sound Unseen Film Festival. We're going to start doing screenings of it for the public this winter, and then we'll see what happens with it. And then I'm very excited to say I've got a radio show that I'm going to be doing next year. I'm busy. I don't know what to tell you. What's the radio show going to be? The Connie Club. Uh, I did it in 2019. I did a little quick pilot month that got completely derailed by COVID. And now it's coming back. It's going to be on a radio station here in Philadelphia called WXPN. And I'm going to be live streaming and doing all these fantastic tapings with live guests. It's a variety show, but the whole point of it is that you're getting a live audio broadcast from this fictional dive bar called the connie club where all kinds of crazy people hang out and fucked up things happen and it's a crazy saturday night at the connie club
1: that's great
2: wxpn
1: legendary radio station for sure and i know radio has some significance to you um Certainly, we talked offline about this a little bit, but even on your uh,
2: Jerry Blavitt uh, tribute, if you will. Yeah, well, you lived in Philly long enough to know who Jerry is. Sure. Some of your listeners probably don't know.
1: Oh, I think so. I think think the East Coast word travels.
2: Yeah. You know? Well, if you're listening to this and you don't know who Jerry Blavitt, a.k.a. the geeter with the heater, was, look it up. He was the ultimate, ultimate DJ. The ultimate exciter in the room. And I don't think it's wrong to say he was an absolute icon in Philadelphia. Like, uh, one of the most famous people in the city, if you know what I mean. Everybody knew him. I would say so. All through his radio.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think, yeah, the East Coast words... I remember first, before I was doing work down in philadelphia another person who i think you and your performance uh, remind me of is uh pete wolf the wolf of of mm.
2: um he i remember he him talking about the the heater the heater with the heater yeah i mean that's from a generation of djs that were really entertainers they weren't just the people that hit play they were the entertainers themselves you know So, in closing, do you have any
1: concept of where our society would be if music wasn't such an active part of it?
2: Well, it's, it's, it's trite, but I, it, I think it's true even in my kind of um, pessimistic view of things. Um music really is the connecting glue between people there's every reason you can think of now that people would be uh, divided and antagonistic and disconnected right Um, in, in, in a very acrimonious way like we're going through something now in the United States that we don't understand the changes that are happening right now in the United States culturally that other countries with longer histories have gone through before. They've gone through periods of time with, um, you know, fascist regimes and neighbors, you uh, You know, ratting on each other to the government and and all kinds of terrible things that other countries have gone through. And now we're just starting to go through this really increased period of animosity between people, culturally. It's a sad thing. Music is probably the only thing we have. Maybe sports, but music, but that's team versus team. Music is a thing that absolutely unites people. And I know this firsthand because I do shows, I do these free shows in the summer where I go to towns and counties and do these public events where anyone can show up. Black, white, gay, straight, Republican, Democrat, old, young, whatever. You get everybody at these shows. And the scene is set for animosity. Let me tell you, I've walked down on stage in situations where people were already screaming at each other. And it's my job to try to find a pathway through music that I can actually get them all together. It's challenging, but you can do it. Without music you can't. It's a fundamental need that we have, is the need for music in our society. I wish it was valued more. I wish it was valued more in our society, uh, in our schools, and in our public, in public sphere. But I see it firsthand the power of music. I have fans, people that come to my shows and follow me, who are absolutely on the opposite side of the political spectrum for me, and they let me know it. And I work hard to try to keep them at the table. Maybe I'll change their perspective, maybe I won't, but I still welcome them into the room on the offhand chance that they might see a broader spectrum in our society, right? It's a lot of work, but it's worth it, I think. I think it's definitely worth it. And
1: uh, I'm so grateful we got to put some steps on in Columbus Square Playground. We 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 around the park. Yeah, it was it was a saunter at times. We debated going in the uh, the pool over there, but I think that would have gotten a little. I look with too the good kids. for that. I can't. <laughs> Adam, thanks for you know taking a walk. I appreciate it, man. My man.
0: Taking a walk with Buzz Night is available on Spotify. Let's hit it!